0: This episode of Startup Project is brought to you by Baird.Tax. Tax compiles all your crypto transactions and makes it easy for you to file your taxes. Check out Tax. That is B-E-A-R dot T-A-X, Hey, Harvey, welcome to the
1: show. Hey, Nataraj. Uh Thanks for having me here. Uh, so I think a
0: good place to start our conversation. Uh, you know, I want to talk about REV Alliance and the things that you're doing with it. But before that, can you give a quick overview of what you know your career has been till now?
1: Absolutely. I started my career in uh, fintech. Uh, I started my career at a company called Adapar uh, back in uh, 2011. Uh, so when I joined, it was around Series A. Uh, they had right around then closed their Series A, I believe. And what they did was build software for wealth managers and family offices. So if you were managing a large pool of other people's money or your own money, uh, you essentially have a lot of uh, different workflows there where you tend to have your assets at different banks, brokers, uh, custodians, and you tend to need market data to value those things. So it's a huge data aggregation problem, which is what my focus was. And then uh, you have to do enrichment and analytics and reporting and all the other workflows. Uh, so I was there uh, about mid 2011 to early 2013, I believe and uh, worked mostly on the financial data aggregation side. And from there, I uh, left to start my own startup in the core banking technology space. So where our vision was at the time was to build uh, a brand new core banking platform. Uh, we, we had a couple of different other entryways into that uh, grand vision, but it was that, that um, all these banks that are running on you know 50 year old systems uh, with very extremely, the most legacy of legacy um, vendors you can imagine, uh, we wanted to build something new that would enable banking to be radically more efficient and improve financial access for everyone. So, you can imagine this is an insanely hard segment to sell into, a lot of career risk on the buying side. So, um, while we did actually find a few banks to partner with who were very open to uh, working with us and uh, building really cool things, we could not, we didn't really see a way to scale it in a meaningful way uh, that would not really turn us into mostly a professional services firm. So, um, I left uh, that startup uh, around uh, late 2014. From there, I joined uh, Coinbase on the uh, institutional biz dev side. So my mandate was essentially make the transactions, uh, make the amount of uh, people buying Bitcoin go up and ideally institutions who have large pockets. And so worked on everything from merchant payments to marketplace payouts to um, family offices, trading platforms. And eventually what it came down to was uh, launching a Bitcoin ETF. And um, sort of uh, towards the end of my tenure at Coinbase or towards later part of my tenure, I realized that Uh, launching a Bitcoin ETF was going to be a five to six year long process at minimum. And I think, uh, you know, now that we are five to six years uh, later from 2015, and the fact that it still hasn't launched, it's (laughs) evidence of that. So uh, I realized that I didn't want to be in a role that had a lot of like legal and market risk. So from there, I joined uh, Plaid right around the series A and uh, on the go to market side. So helped a lot of the sales processes, playbooks, tools, um, go to market strategies and things like that, worked with a really great team of people. And uh, I was there until about early 2017. From there, I left and decided I've always had this itch to do um, to be an engineer. So I decided to like give that my full time focus. And so left, did a coding boot camp, did the engineering side. Um, briefly took on some roles, but then realized uh, that you know at the end of the day, W two employment was just no longer for me. So I uh, this I had also been doing a bunch of angel investing uh, while especially it started while I was at Plaid. And uh, since then, I'd been sort of just thinking about how do we make founders richer, how do we make startup employees richer, and essentially help improve this ecosystem and make sure that more of the people who are doing the work on the ground—the selling, the making, the founding—are um, capturing more of the upside. And so that led me down an interesting direction, uh, which eventually led to uh, the reV Alliance. So
0: that's a good way to, uh, you know, a good segue for RUV Alliance. But I want to step back, and it looks like. In terms of your career steps, you always join a CDCA startup or a startup or a CDCA startup. Was that your perspective when you're making that decision?
1: You know, I'd never thought about it uh, when I was making the decisions initially in terms of stage. Uh, But uh, you're right, that is absolutely a pattern. It tends to be in the series A. uh, Like I think Coinbase was maybe series B or C when I joined, but it was still extremely early at that time. And uh, I just, I love roles. I love companies where uh, there was a lot of open space. Like I'm one of those people, I'm very good at writing playbooks and checklists. I am not so good at executing playbooks and checklists other people have written. So
0: let's talk about RUV Alliance. So uh, you are angel investing and uh, how did, you know, RUV Alliance come about? Because RUVs, uh, I mean, uh, for those who are listening and don't know about it, are roll of play that, you know, Angel has created. And these were primarily to help, startup founders, right? To raise money from their friends and family. Uh, but you've taken it to a, another extreme level, I felt, uh, after you know, you know know being part of RUV Alliance for a while. Uh, so talk to me about that journey. Like uh, when you figured out you want to do something uh, in investing space, uh, did you uh, evaluate other options uh, before actually you know looking at RUVs?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, <laughs> creating the RUV Alliance was sort of my uh, choice of last resort. I had explored lots of other options and Um, and how the alliance actually came together is a a true like startup. You know, it started with a throwaway tweet and uh, then it exploded into this, uh, you know, 1300 member community. But I'm happy to take you through sort of the details of how this began. So I actually made my first angel investment when I was at Plaid. I, um, how it started and really, I feel like the advice that's given to founders uh, in terms of build something to solve your own problem is also actually really good advice for investors. And how, and so to give you an example of that, when I was at Plaid, one of the biggest issues we had was how do we allocate our time efficiently? Because as everyone knows, hiring in startups is extremely hard. And so we had, um, you know, very few people to do what is now to do what was frankly, like probably 10 times as many people's jobs, Uh, which is, you know, that's, that's the case of any rapidly growing startup. And so I realized that the limiting factor for us was not money, but time. And so uh, I, I was thinking, how do we figure out how much a deal costs us in terms of time? So I uh, leaned into that and I realized that there, at that time, Salesforce and all these tools would show you the outcome metrics of like how many deals you close, how much revenue you generated, but it wouldn't really show you how, many, how much time that deal costs, because that's just generally not how you know, large companies think of things. So I tried to actually start building my own tool to track my time as a salesperson, like how many minutes per meeting, how many emails, things like that, realized that this was actually a gigantic problem. And uh, it was not something I was going to solve while also working 80 hours a week at a Series A startup. So I was lamenting about this issue at uh, at lunch one day. And one of my colleagues mentioned that he knew somebody who was working on this problem. Uh, So he connected me with that founder. Uh, The tool was exactly what I had in mind and what we needed. We started deploying it and it was the best example, best analogy is like, it, it was like having, it was like being the only party in World War II to have radar. Like it, you just could do things that just look like magic. And we were able to operate in a, at a speed and velocity that was, you know, unthinkable to me prior. So uh, I insisted on investing. I met the team. I was just like, I have to be able to invest, invest in the company. And that was actually my first angel investment. And it turned into a unicorn um, in less than a few years. And so I um, sort of started kept investing uh, down that flow. Which company is this? Uh, this is People AI. Oh, People AI. I'm an investor
0: yeah. in People AI as well.
1: Oh, f- phenomenal! Small world. Uh, great, great choice, by the way. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Uh, so how did that lead to Arivela? Uh, yeah. So I uh, continued angel investing. Uh, th- uh, uh, you know, just directly, and then I kind of. So what I realized was it was very frustrating to angel invest. I mean, you first you have to reach out to the founder, and you have to build a relationship, and then you have to exchange safe docs, and then there's this whole like song and dance, and at the end of the day, like. I'm a bit of an introvert, which is ironic considering I've always been in like biz dev and go to market roles, but like, I, I never want to take a meeting that I don't have absolutely have to take. So I started uh, at that time thinking, you know what, I might just be okay with paying carry on AngelList um, because it's like an e-commerce like experience. Like I can see a deal, I can click invest and I can go about my day. Cause all I want to do is pick securities that go up hundred X. That's <laughs> like, if they do other things, that's cool. And we help the world. That's great. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm in this business to make money. So I started doing that. And then I also realized, you know, these, a lot of these companies that I'm like having to pay carry for, I'm seeing them anyway. Like I'm, I'm like running into them as part of my daily life, you know, friends, founders, things like that. So that was happening. And then there was another thread, which was I, um, so while I was doing that and I was still have to go after direct deals, I kept getting muscled out of deals because I was just, I'm a nobody, you know, at that time, i I mean, even now I'm still a nobody, but like, uh, like I, you know, I just was like per, a person writing five, 10 K checks, you know, the occasional hundred, um, into like, uh, but, I, I didn't have a brand name. I didn't really want to have like, you know, a brand name. I didn't really want to raise a fund, et cetera. But I just wanted to get into the deals I want to get into. So what I uh, so this this started bothering me is I started getting muscled out of deals. So then a third thing happened, which is I got the an opportunity to co-lead an SPV into a later stage company. Um uh, I can't can't share the name, I think, but um, I got a chance to lead co-lead this SPV. It was a great experience for the team we worked with. But what ended up happening was we were so successful in how much we raised that we actually um, had to, we actually, um, uh, we were so successful in how much we raised. uh, And simultaneously, a lot of other folks were interested in that same deal. And for, you know, logistical reasons, et cetera, we got muscled out of it. So we actually had to start returning money to uh, to LPs. So that kind of um, also set me on a way, which is like, I'm one of those people, like, I cannot stand to not have the most leverage in the room. So that started bugging me. Like, I'm just like, I got to have control over things. So I started thinking, and at the same, and so along with that thread, I was talking with a lot of friends who were joining startups and helping them negotiate their equity. And so in some cases, helping them get like seven figures more, you know, like I'm sure in some cases, and now it's starting to like eight figures more in equity upside. But we always ran into this issue where, uh, where like they couldn't really get more beyond a certain point uh, because they were negotiating for options and common shares. And so there's these four threads were running simultaneously. These handful of threads were running simultaneously and they kept bugging me. And so what, so what, what, what I started before the REV Alliance, which is what led to the REV Alliance is this concept called employee led SPVs. So what I realized was what do founders raise money for? They raise money to hire people. What's the thing that sucks when you hire people is when they leave. So what if you could make it easier to hire people and you could uh, keep employees from leaving and you could boost an employee equities, uh, employees equity upside. So how would you do that? So what I realized was, what if I go to employees at startups, existing or current, existing or future, and I say, hey, together, let's go negotiate for an allocation in the startup you joint you uh, you work at, and I'll help you fill it, and uh, on the fundraising side, and we'll split the carry fifty fifty. So that's how. So that was the initial thing I was working on for pretty much mid twenty nineteen to um, early twenty twenty one. If uh, I'll stop there. If there's any questions or thoughts.
0: So initially, your idea was to do a regular SPV, but you know have it. A- uh, carry share and basically convincing the employees to invest and partly, and then you know expanding through your network to fill the rest of the SPV's commitment. Uh, so that was your initial strategy, right?
1: Exactly, and um, and so we we ran it a few times and it worked phenomenally. I mean, uh, the numbers are unbelievable. Like I think we did a four x DPI, or four x distribution to paid in capital within a year and a half, which is unthinkable. Um, I mean, so but the issue there was it was a couple things. One. Uh, it, it runs into all the same issues uh, companies who are doing secondaries have, where you have to find an employee first. You have to find an existing hold, you know, person. Then you have to convince the CEO, and then you have to like source capital. So, uh, so, re- so one was just finding the employees who were willing to do this was very hard. And I tried everything. I tried cold emailing like every employee at like every Series A and B startup. I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of people uh, you know who who work at startups who have my email uh, in their inbox right now, and. So, so I was able to find a few folks who were willing to, to do this. And we then, then convincing the CEOs was actually pretty easy. Like once they, once they understood what the mechanics were, they were completely, you know, for this. And then the third part was raising the capital. Now, this is where I got surprised. I thought this would be really hard. So the first employee who did this, uh, that person... I thought, okay, you know, we'll raise like, you know, mid six figures, et cetera. Like, it'll probably be, you know, like take a, take a week and go try with your own network. If you only get like 10% of the way, that's fine. Um, And I'll, I'll take care of the rest. Like I'll backstop it. Within 48 hours, completely massively oversubscribed because you know, I think most LPs realize what an, what an obscenely good deal this is. It's like, oh, I can I'm paying Carrie, but the person I'm paying Carrie to is basically working on the company full time, making my investment go up and they have common shares. Um, it's like the company has paid for the GP commit. It's it's it just the incentive alignment is so crazy. So uh, and every employee that I worked with started having that, you know, level of success. Like it really took like no work. Like they within within 24 hours. But-
0: A worth is part of an existing fundraising round or uh, is is it just, you know, a middle of a nowhere equity round for the company? Uh,
1: So both. Uh, So in the case of an existing fundraising round, we would just say, give us the same terms you're already doing, which was easy. Uh, Where we actually, what was really surprising to me uh, was when we started doing off cycle raises, where essentially we would approach the company and say, "Uh, can you give us an uncapped safe at 20% discount? And you know, for them, that's like, why not? That's basically raising their next round. It's like a dollar for dollar reduction almost uh, with that slight discount. So they would just say, yeah, sure. So they would issue us the safe. And then, you know, I th- again, I thought this would be really hard to raise for and Employees within 24 hours were just smashing like, you know, $500,000 raises. Um, and so two things occurred to me. One, once I've shown an employee how to do this there's no real reason for them to keep me on for the next deal. So like all this like customer acquisition costs I spend to acquire this employee is is gone because, and I'm not saying most, I'm not saying the employees did this, but like, it's what I would do, you know, like, uh, and that's what the, and to me, like the incentives are everything. I don't, I don't believe in ideals. I'm just, I just look at incentives. So I'm like, the incentive is for them to cut me out. And then two, uh, we started talking to CEOs and they started thinking, they started asking this very interesting question, which is um, how, how could I do this for all my employees? And that started leaning down a very interesting thread, which I realized also implied that once we taught empl- CEO how to do this, why would they need me anymore? And, th- and so that was happening. And then the third thing that happened was I started talking to some of my portfolio company CEOs and a couple other people. And I started noticing this very interesting trend that people were doing, which is they didn't want to deal with 50 angels. Uh, they wanted to bring in all these operators as investors, but they didn't want to deal with that. So they would like set up their own SPV uh, and then they would just waive the carry and then you know, pass through the fees. And the moment I started seeing that and I reasoned through what that entailed, I was like, well, you know, this, this whole business I'm doing is over and will never come back. But this whole new thing is the future. And like, in, in the, and the reason why, and I'm happy to go into this in a second is that there's a lot of, it's tempting to see RUVs or these roll-up vehicles as an administrative tool, but that's actually not what they are. It, they're a strategic tool. And, um, and so that's kind of where like my head exploded.
0: And there's an interesting battle between RUVs and, you know, now suddenly popular term called DAOs, right? Because the mechanics are pretty similar. Like whenever people talk about DAO, my mind goes to two things. One is RUVs and the other one is equity crowdfunding, right? If you make it so easy to raise capital, like which is RUV essentially, um, it, it almost mimics the dynamics of a DAO, right? Because in RUV case, you almost are taking pre-commitments for the startups that you're interested in, right? In your Discord uh, server, you're uh, taking pre-commitments for a startup, which I don't know if you are, you do that after initiation or before initiation. And I'm assuming it's before you're initiating any uh, call with the founder or not. Um, but it almost similar to the dynamics of, you know, how a DAO uh, generates, uh, you know, crowd investment uh, into a company. Uh, you're almost generating distribution first and then creating a company. Um, and there's also the effect of democratization of access, um, and there's ease of process that is there. Uh, I don't think DAOs, in a sense, like are aiming to be all these, but there are some instruments which are already these. Um, and we can go into DAOs, uh, you know, in a bit. But um, so once you have decided, you know, REVs are the next big thing. Uh, how do you see this, you know, different from, you know? If you do an SPV, right, um, you're getting an additional carry, right? That's your advantage because you're doing all this work. You know, you as Harvey is getting extra ten percent or twenty percent carry on whatever SPV that you're closing. Uh, then, how did you shift your uh, just in terms because you talked about leverage? How did that leverage change for you when you started, you know, doing deals through UVs
1: It's a great question, and it's uh, there's a lot of interesting moving pieces there. So when uh, so it's a couple of things one is with RUVs we operate a little differently than most investor communities and this is all thing in that we do not work for the founders the founders are not our customers uh, it seems like it in every investor community et cetera, will say oh we you know we put the founders first we absolutely do not like that's not that's not our goal our goal is to make investors rich uh, and so the way and so that actually leads to some very interesting things which is one so there are a lot of investor communities out there where you can submit a deal, et cetera. And uh, like, it's, it's, very dim, it's very supply push. Like the founder is pushing the deal to investors. We allow for that functionality, but frankly, it's not the highest priority. That's not really where our value add is. It's, it's kind of like more of a, it's like, uh, it helps us in case we get positively surprised, which, which definitely happens. Like so, sometimes companies come in and, we're, and I'm like, wow, I would have never seen this company and the, and the community loves it. But where we specialize is in uh, demand pull. So what that means is we aggregate commits, uh, as you said, and then we actually approach the founders, and which is which is actually the reverse of how REVs are traditionally or like uh, doctrinally designed to be used. So, if you look at the REV providers today or anyone who's equivalent, they pitch this as sort of an administrative tool, which is okay. Hey, you're a founder, you've got yourself a lead. You know, you got your terms. You got like 50 angels you want to bring in. You don't want to deal with paperwork. That's fine. So you can do that, and that is a completely valid way to use REVs. But there's a strategic change. Uh, what RUVs actually are is a strategic change in the landscape. It's kind of like, it's kind of like having a car in World War One, and then suddenly realizing, wait a minute, what if I put armor on the car, a gun on the car, and then I put tracks on the car, and all of a sudden you've changed the entire nature of warfare. You've taken three things that already exist, and you've just combined them in a unique way. So what we realized with RUVs is that one. What if you reverse the process? And so the founder creating the RUV and then reaching out to investors, what if the investors effectively create the RUV and then reach out to the founder? And all of a sudden you change everything because one, the found, those investors are actually willing to pay a higher valuation because the cost is the same to them uh, versus going through a syndicate. So or it, they're willing to pay basically up to a certain point, um, but it's higher than whatever an SPV lead or a fund lead would pay because they don't have that 20% hurdle or that 2 in 20 hurdle to go over. Uh, Two, we proxy our voting rights to the founder, which is, I mean, as a founder, like that's like the dream, which is you can raise more money and never lose control of your company. Like who would not take that? Uh, And three, RUVs are actually more liquid than company stock. Uh, So RUV interests. And so you can actually sell an RUV interest. I mean, the mechanics of this are still being worked out as we speak. But uh, let's just say I've done something very similar to this and uh, it was very smooth. And so it's much easier to sell RUV interest than it is to actually sell shares in an individual company. So you get a liquidity improvement, you get a corporate governance improvement relative to the founder, and you get a valuation improvement. And so we realize the, the thing that's keeping blocking founders is that um, like, if, if you, uh, actually, uh, if you take an SPV, here's a better way to think about it. If you take an SPV lead and you unbundle what that SPV lead is actually doing. So what are they doing? One, they're sourcing a deal. Two, they are spinning up a vehicle. Three, they have a mailing list of investors that they send the deal out to. So now that RUVs founders can create their own RUV, great. You know they've set up their own they've set up their own vehicle. Um, sourcing the deal, I mean, companies are pretty easy to find these days. I mean, uh, in terms of the ones who are interesting, uh, and then uh, then it's uh, the investor network. And so we realized, what if we provide the investor network basically as a service, effectively? So you, the founder, can just submit your deal, and you know, next thing you know, you're in front of 1,300 plus accredited investors, all of whom are like, you know, top tier operating experience. So um that's sort of like how we've been thinking about it strategically and we realized that this actually changes the entire dynamics of the fundraising landscape
0: what has been the response from the founders um uh, and there's an additional factor when rvr lens came up right it came up in pandemic when fundraising essentially suddenly became global uh and i see indian companies raising from u.s investors and vice versa like it's now, everyone is, every investment is up for grabs, right? Because any investor sitting anywhere can do, you know, due diligence. So it's no longer, you know, differentiated in terms of geography or thesis. Or, I mean, maybe thesis, but that's your own mental uh, model for it. But every investment in every country, in every sector is basically up for grabs. So you also came up at a time where this is happening simultaneously, which made um, sort of founders probably more receptive to the idea as well, right?
1: Absolutely. So the macro factors you described, 100%. One is the comfort with like taking capital from people you've never met, which is, uh, or people you've never even had a Zoom call with or a phone call with. For example, one of our first deals was into an Indian company. uh, And we raised over $300,000 for that company within 48 hours from 60 LPs from all over the world, not a single meeting, phone call or Zoom. I mean, unheard of like five years ago to do something like this. And so, yeah, we're, we're standing on a huge stack of like giants of people who built uh, this amazing process. And, you know, we've had companies from Pakistan, from Mexico, from all over. And yeah, the democratization is, uh, it was not initially what I thought uh, this would become, but um, that's, uh, I'm very happy to see that that's the direction it's gone.
0: Your deal flow on RU Alliance is almost extreme, I would say, like the number of deals I see. Uh, as part of RU Alliance is like really high. How are you able to generate such, you know, large amount of deep flow? Like, uh, is, is this mostly you reaching out or is this, you know, members of RU Alliance reaching out? Uh, what is the process behind the scenes process that is happening, which is generating such incredible deal flow, both in quality and quantity?
1: It's a great question. Uh, it's mostly the strength of the it's the strength of the community, really. Uh, I would say ninety nine percent of the deals that come in, I have I all that like happens is like I I find out about the deal the same time everybody else does. In that I get the, the email notification, I hit submit, and it gets sent out to the group. And so it's mostly the community talking about this. It, this sort of goes back to the um, uh, initial question you had about how do founders see this. And so uh, to go into that uh, is that founders the initial reaction of every founder is disbelief. One hundred percent, ninety nine percent of my burden when speaking to founders is just like they'll like it's just explaining to them how they will not get screwed by working with us. It, it sounds crazy, but like it's the deal was too good, uh, frankly. And like frankly, if we made the deal a little worse, it might actually make it ironically easier to sell to founders. So uh, one is that, and then so a lot of founders once they do a, a deal through us, they refer everyone uh, they know to us, and that's like why we've been. I think uh, this we just published our hundredth deal uh, actually yesterday. And I calculated, we were founded on July 2nd of uh, 2021. So that means on average, we have been publishing a deal every 48 hours to our members.
0: Have you gotten any feedback from people who are already running, you know, syndicates and other SPVs and have a model, you know, with higher leverage, right? You know, uh, we have now large large syndicates with 3,000, 5,000 accredited investors and, you, you are in a sort of ways uh, competing with them for detail. Um how, What was the dynamic, uh, you know, with syndicate leads or other micro funds or you know solo GPs? Uh, how was that, you know, uh, dynamic? been?
1: You, you know, it's been very collaborative and collegial. Uh, you know, it's initially I had framed a lot of our framing as like, yeah, we're against you know the carry industrial complex and all that. But really fundamentally, it's actually, it's a bit more nuanced than that. And so uh, we we actually work very closely with a lot of SPV and fund leads. And so uh, I, we've had situations where we publish a deal and then, you know, a, a, a GP uh, of a fund will reach out to that founder uh, saying, oh, we found you on RUV Alliance. And then they'll write a large check into that, which is great. We love that. Anything that makes founders richer, faster, I'm all about that. Um, and so... Uh, The other thing we do is if you're an SPV lead and or if you're leading an SPV and you want uh, and you basically want, uh, we see this a lot with like emerging managers and emerging SPV leads. Uh, The biggest challenge is building getting getting yourself in front of an LP network. That's like the whole secret behind all of this. So what we do is that, well, that thing that's really hard and expensive and terrible to do, we're just going to make it it free. And so if you as an SPV lead, if you are willing to waive the carry on your on your deal, you can actually submit your deal to us. We will share it out just like any other deal. And then what's really great is any of the LPs that come in, you now have direct access to those LPs. So it's basically like instead of you having to do networking and coffee meetings and things like that, you can just audition by actually doing the work. Um and so you can just, like if you put out good deals, people will follow you and like that, that actually kind of goes into another point in terms of like how we differentiate from a lot of the fund managers and syndicate leads out there which i'm happy to get into yeah how, how do you
0: differentiate RE from um you
1: know, other fund managers yeah so here's a great way to think about this if you want to buy a share of tesla stock there's a couple of ways you can do this one you can just buy it for free on on robin you pay no commission carry management fees to do that you can invest in a mutual fund that owns Tesla and you know you're gonna pay a little bit of load or fee for that. You can invest in an ETF that owns Tesla, you're gonna pay some asset management fee there. You can invest in a hedge fund that owns Tesla, you're gonna pay two and twenty. You know, you got all these you can invest in a wealth manager and they're gonna charge 140 basis points, and you know, maybe you'll be invested in Tesla. So there's all these different ways that you can get exposed to Tesla based on what level of advisory you're looking for. Like you can go everything from like, Um, me as a direct stock picker to like, I don't ever want to think about this and I want to hire a manager to deal with it. And then I think that's totally legitimate. I think that's 100% how the market should work. You shouldn't have to, like you should should pay for more levels of advisory work. Now, what I am 100% against is what I call access-based fees. So if you as an investor know you want to invest in something and you can't do it because access is restricted for some arbitrary reason or it requires, you know, like personal relationship, whatever. To me, this is the enemy. So I call this access-based carry. So I love advisory-based carry. If you're a top-tier fund and you, you make, you know, those types of picks and people are hiring you for your advisory, great. Pay as much. I think for those, my managers are actually undercompensated. Two and 20 is a bargain for the best managers. Uh, like they should charge more. But there's there's like folks out there who are basically arbitrary ga, arbitrarily gatekeeping uh, these deals because you can't like invest in them unless you try pay a huge amount of fees or things like that. When it's like, I don't need this person's advisory work. I just want access to this deal. So for example, if you want to invest in SpaceX, that's a whole like different thing <laughs> because you're going to be investing in SPVs that pay like four levels of carry when like, I don't need to be convinced in any way, shape or form that SpaceX is a great investment. Like I, I don't think anyone on most people on planet earth don't need to be convinced of that. They just. Yeah. Want to be able to hit it on a buy button. So, our philosophy is freedom of trade for all the same reasons as freedom of speech.
0: I mean, there are a lot of uh, interesting points uh, in terms of access that you bought there because arbitrary, most private investments are restricted by acquisition rules, uh, which it shouldn't be because anyone can you know go to casino and lose all their money. I mean, there are penny stocks listed on stock exchanges, you know, which. Which will, which go up and down by ninety percent plus in a day, um, so it's a very arbitrary, you know, decision to restrict, um, you know, private investing uh, through accreditation rules. So I think Angel is sort of played uh, uh, and you know went and did the Jobs Act, which led to equity crowdfunding, and then things started changing. And even with rolling funds, now you can actually publicize your private deals, but there's still that restriction which you know, limits access to a lot of people. Because you know, how is a person with 190k uh, uh, salary is different from a person who's making 210? Suddenly, it's not you know intelligent by leaps and bounds to understand private equity to invest in it, right? So I think that's at the core, you know, which also prevents access to deals and sort of perpetuates this whole system. Another interesting question that I thought of uh, asking you is about you know how did angelists react to this? Um, because I, I know uh, there's some angelist uh, team members also in RUV Alliance and they probably wouldn't have imagined uh, someone like RUV Alliance coming up and doing this sort of a thing.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so one, we I, I talk with them fairly often uh, and I'm a huge fan of everything they've done in the space to a- a accelerate things on the RUV front. And the fact that they're charging nothing for it except for blue sky fees, which are regulatorily imposed, is mind boggling. I mean, this is, this is a... Com- mind shattering thing that has uh, been achieved. So uh, how they react to it actually goes back to how this actually started. So what I noticed was in in January is when I stopped working on it. January 2021 is when I stopped working on employee led SPVs. So for two, three months, I was kind of just like in the void trying to figure out what to do next. And then I saw the announcement, I believe in March uh, is when Angelus launched the RUV product. And I realized, wow, RUVs are like safes. Like this is going to be the next thing. Like this is the default of how founders should fundraise. So I started looking for RUV deals and I realized that there's actually no, pol- there's no way to find them. Um, so for example, if you, there's no equivalent of a syndicate you can subscribe to or a mailing list, you can subscribe to find these. So one day I was complaining about this on Twitter uh, back in uh, July of last year. And another founder had DM'd me. Uh, so a founder had DM'd me and said, hey, you know, wouldn't it be cool if there was like an air table or something that like we could just list all the deals that we see and we could just like crowdsource these. And I was like, yeah, that would be cool. And then I was like, yeah, you know, I've never like used Discord. Maybe cool to have like a chat room full of that. Cause like uh, I'm in a couple other investor Slack groups. Uh, and so th- I casually put up a tweet. I was like, oh, I'm starting a Discord to like track RUV deals and, uh, you know, for founders and investors. Uh, so if you want to join, here it is. Thinking like five people would join. And it was... <laughs> that was my mistake and then you know it it exploded and then every day we were getting like you know like 20 50 investors like like people like you know just i'm from all over this uh like all over the silicon valley over the world like tier one operators across every dimension and then it done i mean wow there really is like a need to expose these deals but know there's obviously a lot of concerns like if you're the platform itself like do you want to be like in the like sense where it's like you're it looks like you're doing marketing etc like we're a completely independent entity like i we have raised no money uh we actually run on donations which is like shocking because we're probably the only like investor syndicate that runs on uh donations uh which means that we have total we have total freedom of access and uh, you know we have we have 1400 we have 1300 people who are eyes and ears everywhere uh looking for deals So uh, in terms of the collaboration with them, it's been great. I mean, we are constantly sending feedback back and forth. We're constantly, I mean, introducing founders to the concept of RUVs. Uh, So yeah, so far, I've loved working with them. And I I think we're actually going to see a space where more funded men start offering an RUV type product.
0: I mean, you are doing their go-to-market strategy and customer acquisition in a way uh, that they have not imagined, right? Uh, And I'm sort of surprised that the uh, RU Alliance runs on donations. Uh, I I didn't know that. Um, So that comes... That sort of is a good segue to my uh, next question is, do you have plans to like, you know, I'm sure you've seen Strongs.com, right? They're essentially in a similar model, but they are essentially changing a version of what REV Alliance is. But I would say, I'm not sure if they're actually charging carry or not. Um, and Strongs.com is pretty viral, And a lot of people use it, uh, you know, to uh, sort of look at startups and invest. Um, do you have, and, and they're also, you know, actually creating a company around it and raising funds to, you know, more streamline it and do, you know, all fun stuff around it. Um, what are your plans with RUV Alliance next?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, in terms of stonks, I love stonks, a uh, big fan of the team there. We, you know, are always like uh, sending deals to them if we can. And, uh, so I love what they're doing. And I think for the idea of like synchronous, like demo day type fundraising, it's awesome. Like I, I personally, am just a very like async type person. Like I just will avoid any meeting I possibly can. So it's like, it's not uh, it's not sort of the framework I approach with deals. Like for me, it's like, oh, when I hear about a company I, you know, then we'll be like, all right, great, I'm gonna go read 50 books on the subject and then I'll make my decision. And so, um, so I think it's, I think it's a phenomenal platform. What they're doing is massively democratizing access and, you know, more power to them. So in terms of the business model, like it's something I've been thinking a lot about one thing that I want. So one, in terms of how we run on donations, this, I think actually shocks a lot of people. Uh, we have a public, all our finances are public. So every dollar I spend on tools for this, um, you know, assistance, whatever it might be, you can actually see all of it on our opencollectivecom slash RUV Alliance, I think is the URL. Uh, so it's all there. Like our invoices, everything, um, every person who's donated, how much they've donated. And for me, it's just, uh, I think the most important thing is incentive design always. And so, I, there's a few things I want to solve uh, for what we're doing. Um, for example, I really want us to get to the point where every growth stage deal in the world, you can see it on REV Alliance, you can invest for free. I think we're actually very close to that. Uh, we are sort of building that playbook now. And once we're able to do that, then I think it'll make sense to figure out like how we can charge for this in a more effective way. So one thing I'm pretty much uniformly against is charging uh, any sort of commission type structure, uh, charging on a carry like type structure. Because to me, like there should always be a free path like if you want to be the self-directed investor like you should not have to pay carry if you already know what you want to do uh like i've also thought about starting my own fund uh, i haven't committed to anything on that front but it's like a lot of people have said hey can you i can just invest in what you invest i'm like yeah you know there's a <laughs> there's a way that that's traditionally done uh so if people just want to buy advisory services that's you know a conversation i'm going to have with them but um, yeah, it's kind of open-ended. I mean, the other thing we've thought about doing is actually doing lending. So we'd actually, uh, if you want to do buy now, pay it later for your RUV investments, we'll actually lend you the money to do that. So I, I thought that's like a potential interesting direction we might go. Uh, but yeah, it's still kind of open-ended on the business model front. But I mean, at the end of the day, this thing costs less than a hundred dollars a month to run. I mean, not counting my time, but I mean, in terms of tools, it's less than a hundred dollars.
0: Yeah, I mean, I could easily, uh, you know, think of a place where uh, people would pay, you know, a monthly subscription to just access REV and to see all these and with no carry, right? That's a promising uh, bargain for anyone who's a CST angel investing uh, and has a certain set of investments that they want to do on a per year basis. I think it makes sense for them to pay, you know, a hundred bucks or uh, on an year or a, I don't know how uh, we have to think about the exact uh, number that makes sense, both as a company and uh, for the investor, but I, I could see easily, you know, a serious angel investor paying for uh, such access because it reduces so much hassle. Uh, it's almost like a better version of AngelList. Like if you add a UI on top of what you're doing um, with this card, um, I think it would almost be a, you know, a version or a layer on top of AngelList, uh, which is much more simpler and you know better aligned in terms of incentives. But you know the next topic I want to talk to you about is about uh, what you're doing with uh, DAOs, and you know what you're trying to do with you know DAOs in general, and the current project that you know you also started uh, in real estate, and uh, how are you mixing DAOs with real estate?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So that came up in a really interesting way. And what's really funny about that is I thought there would be no overlap between what we're doing for our UV Alliance. It turns out there's actually a ton of overlap, uh, which has been very funny. So at a high level, what we're trying to do is for this DAO. So it's called Miami 100 DAO, miami100dao.com. And what this DAO effectively is, is we're essentially, we've set ourselves like a really big, hairy, audacious goal. So that goal is build 100,000 Rental uh, brand new multifamily rental units in the in the greater Miami South Florida area uh, every year. Now that is crazy, and it's crazy because one, I think it's only between two hundred to three hundred thousand uh, units of this type have been built in the entire United States of population three hundred plus million people in the uh, like uh, last year. And so we're talking about basically building more in Miami than has been built like like that's ever been conceived. So this is like the Apollo project for housing. Now. Well, the thing that's unique about the way we want to do it is all private funding, no like fancy tax credit financing, EB-5, any of that stuff. That stuff's all great, but like we want to create this as like make this as repeatable as possible. So fundamentally what we want to do is create Y Combinator for multifamily rental developers. And so uh, that actually has like a lot of moving pieces to it because kind of like, you know, 2005, 2004, et cetera, before like Y Combinator Resistant, there was no real good playbook for SaaS founders. There was no good real like source for like the earliest, riskiest form of equity. Um, and I think that that kind of gap now exists in the, um, in the rental space, uh, for building apartment units, because, um, like, and the the proof is that, you know, there's a housing, there's a housing shortage in every single city in the United States in terms of like housing prices just continuously skyrocketing for, for rentals. And how, how does
0: the Dow play into this?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there's a few things that we're doing. So, step one is actually building a playbook, which is if you have no real estate experience, but you're an ambitious go getter type person, and we want to build a playbook. So, we're building a playbook such that you can start reading it from the top, executing it. And by the end of that playbook, you will have a fully stabilized cash flowing. Thousand unit, you know, thousand foot tall like skyscraper sitting somewhere in Miami that you own as like the as a general partner, um, but you know which would be like a billion dollar asset basically. So essentially, like that's like the playbook. Because how do you go from zero dollars worth of real estate to a billion dollars worth of real estate um, as quickly as possible? And um, what we realize is the the hardest form of equity to raise for this is the earliest form of equity, which is like. You, the developer, need to pay for like, you know, an architect. Uh, you need to pay for like a financial model or things like that. So you can actually like uh, put a plan together, approach a landowner, uh, buy an option on the land, and then like get approval from the city before you close on that land. So that equity is like the hardest, riskiest. I mean, it's, it's like pre-seed, it's like pre-seed uh, seed angel uh, type equity. So uh, we are thinking is like the DAO would effectively seed those GPs with like equity. Does
0: it actually require a DAO or can't you do it with, you know, any other traditional instrument?
1: You probably can. Uh, I think I was just excited about DAOs when I created the name. And so we thought, oh, let's go with that. And because I was pretty inspired by what the Constitution DAO uh, folks were doing. And so I, I was just like, oh, like if we could build something like this but for like actually delivering housing units like in, in the US. Uh, and so in the DAO at that point can actually act like it's basically not like a pure investment entity, but you know something like that, uh, like a governance and investment entity. But yeah, I think it could actually be, most likely what will happen is we'll use traditional structures up until the absolute breaking point. And then we'll you know use crypto structures where we actually need them.
0: So in essence, it is still possible to get DAO-like dynamics without using DAO, right?
1: Yes. If you're using the absolute most cutting edge tools today with certain limitations, you you can get there. So for example, you had mentioned earlier equity crowdfunding. So equity crowdfunding before March 15, 2021 was a very different animal than what it is today. And the reason is, uh, if I remember right, the law changed such that you can use SPVs. Whereas before that, you actually would have like 10,000 people on your cap table. Um, You know, Republic and WeFunder itself have done things to streamline that. So they have a special type of crowd safe where it doesn't convert until exit. So it's not like you have to deal with like a thousand signatures at every, you know, conversion point. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's still kind of, kind of was a mess before the SPV side of things. But now that you can do it via an SPV, what is really the functional difference between an RUV that it only holds accredited investors and buys, you know, uh, into a safe at a company and a, you know, uh, uh, a regulation crowdfunding uh, raise that you know, raises into an SPV that buys the same instrument not really much of a difference frankly besides the you know regulatory burden yeah i
0: think there's also a restriction in terms of how much uh, amount of capital that you can raise and from how many people should be on the CV and things like that but you know fundamentally in terms of incentives i think there's not much difference um, that's great uh and you seem to me as a person and this is our, our obviously a our first interaction but someone who reads a lot am i right
1: uh, yeah that's a that's a fair point i try to get through at least like a few books a week
0: Yeah, so what are some of the interesting books that you have read recently and that you would want to recommend?
1: Oh, uh, let's see, one that I uh, read uh, recently, I'm I'm actually rereading it, uh, it's called Atomic Awakening. And what it is is like a history of nuclear power and nuclear engineering, basically from the discovery of the atom to the modern day. And so it's really interesting because up to the first 50% of it is like up to the Manhattan Project and the other 50% is to the modern era. And it's absolutely mind shattering, like what people were attempting and what's actually possible with nuclear energy. Uh, it's just that like it is so scary to people uh, in the world today. Oh, uh, there's an excellent one. I forget the exact name of it, but it's, it's very easy to find. It's a biography of George Marshall. So George Marshall was a uh, chief of staff of the US Army. So he was the head of the US Army during the run up and, uh, uh, and the execution of World War II. And, uh, and also he was secretary of state, uh, I believe afterward, and, you know, was a big part of uh, like negotiating things between um, uh, China and Taiwan and things like that. Um, and so very fascinating to read about this person who was the actual, like, uh, basically the head of, uh, you know, the allied forces and actually coordinating and then how he coordinated Uh, helped coordinate across multiple different stakeholders, across different countries and different groups, like how to actually, you know, execute this massive operation uh, that, you know, fundamentally changed the course of like civilization. So I think that's a very fascinating read uh, that I recently went through. Oh,
0: so I want to ask one last question, uh, because you touched upon this word leverage, which I like a lot, and I use it a lot in my vocabulary as well where do you think the highest leverage today is? Because I personally believe that we are in a hyper-leverage economy. You can leverage code, capital, media, anything. And an individual can leverage, uh, you know, has infinite amount of leverage at their disposal because of internet and everyone is connected and on a network. Um, and where do you see personally where the biggest leverage lies?
1: It's 100% content because it's the only thing you don't need any specialized training to create beyond a certain point. I mean, anyone can sit down and you know write into a Substack or things like that or, or tweet. Uh, and I think I f- fundamentally people just don't create enough content. I think the future of even being a founder and a venture back founder is to be an educator slash entertainer first. So for example, if you're wanting to build a hard tech company, like I, I would like to think of like, you know, something like Elon Musk was starting today, the way I would like start it would be, uh, you know, start recording, start teaching people what this is, like start teaching people what rocket science is on YouTube videos and things like that. And you essentially then establish yourself as an expert. You build this huge audience. You Then you start introducing community aspects to it. And then as you have this audience, this community, this content machine, uh, Um, And you're just chasing like what you find interesting and where you think the problems are, and you're interviewing people in the space, then you see where the problems are. And then that's where you can either a be an investor of sorts like a capital allocator to people solving those problems, or be the person solving those problems uh, yourself. And that's like basically the approach we've taken with um, the REV Alliance, like before we actually did the Alliance. I had written a ton about what I was doing with employee-led SPVs. Like I think I still maybe to this day am the only person who's published an actual like comparison of SPV providers and how you should think about using them. Um, and so I, I open sourced everything I did before that. So I had this like thousand plus people who had been following me because of that. Uh, which immediately was able to leverage into REV Alliance. And then because of that, there's a whole bunch of people who you know um, have followed me into this Miami 100 DAO. And it turns out a lot of the companies, uh, like as we're building this playbook for Miami 100 DAO, that there's a lot of like uh, ch- steps in the checklist that used to be very manual, but are now being done by series A and C stage companies. So now those companies I'm reaching out to, and then they're really excited about what we're doing in Miami 100 DAO. And then I'm like, hey, by the way, I run this investor syndicate and then we're sending them to REV Alliance. And so like this content, turned into community, which is now turning into like capital allocation, which is turning into like, you know, cash flow and all these different things. So yeah, I I think the era of uh, leverage is it all must start with content, like everything starts with like, you know, like a written outline of what you want to achieve.
0: So uh, I'll go back to the question and press here a little bit more. Uh, where, where do you see your leverage uh, and how, how are you seeing your own personal leverage? I, I get it that, you know, we are in a distributed first economy, so building distribution first and going backtrack. So uh, is that the same playbook that you're following? Uh, because with REV, that's what you did uh, and sort of created content. And then um, now you're using that distribution to do, you know, Miami 100 DAO. And are you following the same playbook of, uh, you know, being distribution first?
1: Absolutely. I think... I see no good reason to ever build anything, not distribution first. Like I've having worked at startups, uh, you know, where some had were further along on the distribution point than others, quality of life is 100% proportional to how strong your distribution network is. If you have great distribution, everything's easy. And so for me, I find my highest point of leverage is laying out a written plan and uh, publishing it. Cause one thing I'm willing to do is I'm willing to look wrong very publicly, very aggressively, more so than the average human being. I relish in it, I love rejection. When people like tweet hateful things about me and replies to my stuff, I retweet them just because like, that's how I'm wired, you know? Uh, And so I'm, I'm willing to take those arrows first and take them very publicly. Uh, and, but like help, uh, and what often happens is like, you know, people reach out and things like that. And then I'm able to help create like a cohesive written plan of like, oh, this is like where we want to go. And generally once I'm able to put like, this, that kind of plan together, a lot of like people in the community come together and we were able to fill the operational gaps and the strategic gaps very quickly. So for me, my highest point of leverage is like writing plans and publishing them and then reaching out to relevant experts. Uh,
0: I mean, this has been a great conversation, uh, Harvey, and, uh, I think you're doing something and you are also an intense person that I can clearly say without, <laughs> you know, seeing your face. Uh, you're an intense person. I think you understand leverage and distribution very well. And you also understand where the edge is and you're willing to go there first before anyone else is. And that's where, you know, you generate most returns. Um, so it's been a f- you know, fun conversation for me and hope you had a good conversation. And thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Absolutely. Likewise, big fan of uh, the podcast. And uh, if I can ever be of any help, uh, please let me know. Thank you.